Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Right, a few things to update you on before we get started this week. We've announced a few more shows for our Hot Flush 20 run of dates. So there's three in North America. Actually, only two of them are officially HF20 shows. But on Thursday, the 13th of April... I'll be in Denver at the Black Box. That is not an official Hot Flash 20 show, but I mean, you know, I'm going to be doing what I'm doing. 14th of April, Friday night in Chicago at Smart Bar. Now, the last time I was supposed to play there, I had to cancel and it was really annoying. So it's great to be back there. I'm going to be playing with George Fitzgerald, Hot Flash 20 action. And then on the 15th of April, Saturday night, we'll be in New York City at Good Room. And that is with myself, George Fitzgerald, Sepulchre and Alex Inside. Alex worked on the label with me for many years and is a great DJ, was a resident at Dub War and is just an all-round stand-up guy. So it's great to have him on the show too. Yeah, Sepulchre playing live. That'll be awesome. Haven't seen those guys play live together for many a long day. So that is going to be a great night. But those will be great shows. And then on the 13th of May... In Newcastle in the UK, I'll be at Cobalt Studios with more Elian. So that's going to be great too. There's a few more dates from the original run that haven't happened yet. So if you go over to hf20.news slash events, you can get the full details for all those shows. Yeah, they've been really, really fun so far and really looking forward to this next bunch too. We've got actually shows in Berlin, Lyon, Glasgow amongst others to get through in addition to those North America ones so yeah great stuff really really enjoyable and I hope to see some of you on the dance floor this Friday the fourth and final installment in the mix series that I've been doing to celebrate the 20th anniversary of a label mix four is called concrete contradiction it features tunes from Recondite, Alan Fitzpatrick, Lock Groove, Mind Against, myself and many others. So I'll give you an idea of what that mix is going to be like. So yeah, look out for that. That's out this Friday, the 7th of April. 
Okay, so yeah, that's that. On with the show. This week, we welcome Ben Morris. Ben is a label manager at Kudos Records, which slightly misleadingly is a distribution company primarily. So Ben looks after the accounts of labels on that distribution firm. Like full disclosure, we have an account with Kudos. They're not our primary distributor, but we work with them on bank and fulfillment stuff. So there is an existing working relationship there, but we talk more in general terms in this conversation about the state of the vinyl side of the market, but also the digital side. And this is very much focusing on underground dance labels, underground electronic labels. So Ben is a really experienced guy with just a huge breadth and depth of knowledge to draw upon. We haven't had anyone from a distribution company before on the show, I don't think. I'm thinking about it now. No, we definitely haven't. We've talked a lot about distribution and distribution companies and underground distribution specifically, but never had actually someone on from a sharp end to come and talk about it. So it's great to have Ben on. He is also a little bit of a Twitter personality, which is something that he is very reluctant to discuss as we discover. His Twitter handle is B underscore NMMRS, I think. He is very active and has an eye for a viral tweet. Really impressive eye for a viral tweet, I have to say. But that is not the primary topic of discussion today. We do touch on it, though. But anyway, yeah, great to have Ben on. He's a really interesting guy with, as I said, knowledge to be tapped. And we do tap that knowledge on this week's show. If you like what we're doing here, then you can support us on Patreon. That would be extremely nice of you. There's two tiers first one is four bucks a month four dollars us dollars that is which gets you some bonus content gets you into the private areas of the discord and just the knowledge that you're being nice and supporting us so yeah four bucks a month that's unbelievably cheap and then 10 bucks a month gets you on the hot flush promo list basically that's a musicality tier and it gets you much more content high quality downloads and access and just general Good stuff, really. So yeah, ten bucks a month, two fifty a week, less than a cup of coffee. You know that statistic. So yeah, if you like what we're doing, then we'd be extremely grateful if you would do that. If you're not able to, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hit the five star button on that. That would be nice of you. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist that contains much of the music that we discuss on the show. And join us in the Discord server. It's a hot flush Discord. There is a private area for patrons, but most of it is accessible by the general public, which I suppose you are a member. So yeah, join us there. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord gets you the invite to that server. And um, yeah, that's about it really, isn't it? Without further delay, here is Ben Morris. Ben Morris, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, Paul. How are you? I'm very well. Yes, very, very well. So, okay, for the benefit of listeners who have no clue who you are, can you give us, well, introduce yourself and give us a sense of what you do now and a bit of a potted history of your career in music? I'm a label manager at Kudos Records. I've worked there now for the best part of 15 years. Um, working on uh, digital and physical solutions for a number of labels, predominantly in the electronic music field. Um, covers a wide range of things, really. Um, before to that, before that, sorry, I was at a label um, 
called Apace Music, who were probably most well known for the Master Cut series of compilations back in the sort of 90s and early 2000s. And what I did there for four or five years before starting at Kudos, I did licensing and compilation for those guys. So it was coming up with concepts for compilation labels, licensing in the original tracks and taking them through to market basically okay and kudos is a distributor but can you give us a sort of overview of the of the company as well the company well the company's been in business for i think it's our 30th anniversary last year um started on the same day or the same week as rubber dub interestingly um recently we just uh transitioned into employee ownership Really? Ah, okay. That's interesting. Um, Our MD, Danny Ryan, who founded the company along with Mike Hazel back in 1992, um, has, yeah, he's sold the company to an employee ownership trust, which all the current employees are beneficiaries of. Um, And now we are essentially the John Lewis of music distribution. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's super interesting. Let, let me ask you about that. Um, so how did, presumably, length of service was rewarded there, I assume, in, to, some, to some extent. Is that right? Not necessarily, no. Everyone okay. who's been there over a year um, automatically becomes a trustee and uh, a de facto owner of the company. Um, so there, there is some, you know, technical things regarding length of service that are probably too long and far too complicated for this podcast but the framework of it is that all the employees are now beneficiaries of of the the trust which now owns the company sure i mean, i've no idea how it works uh john lewis or how these things work generally to be honest i mean the, the, what it kind of well my kind of i guess intuition would be that it would be something akin to owning stock in a company but it's not directly analogous to that is it it's not direct ownership so the there's a there's a trust that has been set up which owns the company and uh current and you know i guess future employees who may come on board and complete a year of 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 service will become beneficiaries of that trust and then how, how does that then sort of manifest itself into how the companies run so do you guys get like votes on certain things and that sort of stuff it's, it's early days really um you know we're essentially transferring over from i guess you could call it a, a benevolent dictatorship over to a um tyranny of the masses <laughs> to, yeah seizing the means of production literally um right. over to a you know, uh, I guess you call it a democratic committee. You know, I'm sure, you know, there, there, there's going to be teething and things like that because decisions are going to have to be made sort of jointly now rather than by one person then consulting members of staff, if you know what I mean. The, the members of staff now have to collectively make a decision which would be in the best interests of the company going forward. So, you know, it, it's only been a few months, so we, we're still, and we will continue to be feeling our way around that for a while. You know, Danny, the MD, he's he's staying with us for the next 
five years. You know, this this is his exit strategy, basically, Paul. It's um, rather than, you know, I'm sure you read about it all the time in the music press now, you know, the bigger fish swallowing up the smaller fish and everything ultimately becoming homogenised and, you know, if, if this were to carry on, it would be two big distributors owning the space. So a lot of a, a lot of this was brought in to give independent labels a truly independent distribution option as well and carrying on the legacy that you know that's been built over the last 30 31 years now as well okay so was this presumably then well from what you've just said uh he's in he the the owner or the previous owner um this was completely his idea and he pushed this through as a as he well I mean, he described it as part of his exit strategy i mean was there was there appetite for it within the staff like or was it was it were people surprised like how, what was the uh, what was the reaction when when you kind of realized this was going to happen it knocked me a bit sideways to be honest with you um but then sort of going away and upon reflection you think about it and you think actually this is a really good idea you know because we can carry on we can carry on the work that's been going on for the past 30 years and you know hopefully push it into some new arenas as well you know we've we've been doing very well sort of doing what we do for the past eight years we've we've plowed out a bit of a furrow for ourselves in the lane of music that we do and we, you know we kind of hope that people when they see you know kudos release sheets come through that every release on there is a sort of indicator of quality and stuff we're quite picky about what we take on and what we choose to work with and things like that as well and you know continuing that and expanding it basically you know i don't i don't want this you know this to come across like i'm I'm, I'm trying to sell our services or anything but we've kind of done what we've done you know very well for the past god knows how long you know well i mean that would be like the inference really because there's so many sort of i guess comparable companies that over the last 30 years haven't survived you know that have gone lots of like big big names that were sort of important names in underground music which just just don't exist anymore so i mean how do you uh how do you explain that because i mean there's obviously been so many changes in the the industry and the way music has sold over that time and i th- i suppose that the reason why the majority of those companies have gone under is because they have failed to adapt to those changes so i mean what do you put it down to one thing that that really really sticks with me on that sort of subject is i remember um we remember st holdings you know from back in the day i remember we were very early on the streaming thing we were very big advocates for streaming as soon as it came along because it's like you have to be in this to win this you know so a lot of, you know, when you're speaking to people, you're like, you may as well put it on there, which, you know, streaming is an entirely other thing. You know, the discourse around streaming is an amorphic thing that just new things come up every week in the face of that, you know. Um, but I remember ST Holdings put out a statement just basically saying, fuck Spotify. Then six months later, they were out of business. Yeah. I mean, that tells its own story, doesn't it, really? Yeah, it, 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 it kind of uh, encapsulates it quite nicely. But, you know, they had their thing going on, you know, in that sort of 
2008 to sort of 2012 dubstep to post dubstep boom well the, the, the interesting thing there right is that they they were they were trying to build their own digital platform from quite early on um i forget what it was called now but they would they put a lot of time and resources into building that and um so the, the the vision was there, I guess. So they were really like they had their eye on it. It's not like they were, you know, like living in the past necessarily. But I think um, I think the streaming thing was a bridge too far for quite a lot of people. I mean, you saw like the the reaction of you know from people like I don't know like Tom York or whoever um, was just a little bit, and it re- remains to this day a little bit hysterical and probably not quite understanding the nature of the you know the entirety of what's going on right and you know to to ignore streaming obviously now seems ridiculous and extremely short-sighted as they found out right (laughs) unfortunately definitely um that that's the big example that i can think of you know i think a lot of you know now i would probably say digital is probably 60 percent of our business over physical um so and and the digital music landscape is ever changing you know it's something you've got to constantly be on top of what's coming next and strategize for these things that that are going to come down the road you know i mean spotify just you know they're going to go up against tiktok now and things like that so that invites questions from labels like okay what's our strategy for this so we've got to be conversant on those subjects to ultimately give labels the best advice as well on how to go forward now you know with the streaming thing we we always advocated for it and we always said put all your stuff on there you know make it available ultimately give the give the listener and the consumer the choice of how they want to listen to and ultimately support your music. You know, that's that's the important thing. If the choice is there and let let the listener choose how they want to do it and support it, basically. That's the best thing you can do. Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me ask you then, I mean like the uh the sort of technological development which is in the news at the moment is AI and specifically large language model AI. So has that entered the conversation at all within uh, how you guys are, are thinking about the sort of developments? Not really, no. I mean, it's coming. You know, I'm sure it's coming. What I can see based on my own sort of, you know, rudimentary research on it is it's chatbots and images at the minute. I'm, I'm yet to sort of see any examples, any convincing examples of, of music that's been created by artificial intelligence or anything like that. So, you know, it's very early yeah, days. Yeah, I guess, I guess what, the, the way I've been thinking about it is, um, like, what, well, how it might affect the way music is sold and the way labels do business. And I've been trying to think of a, a case, and I have to say I haven't come up with much so far, but I'm sure somebody will at some stage in some fashion. Someone will have that billion-dollar idea of, of how to monetize music from it, you know, and I think... That yep. might be the next big thing. You know, I saw, you know, a couple of years ago, it was NFTs and it was tokens for ownership of music. And that, well, we all know, kind of know how that went. I mean, I think I think with that, um, uh, I think that will probably be enduring. But I mean, the, uh, the development of that was kind of synonymous with the crypto bull market. And yeah, that went 
One Direction. <laughs> Although maybe it's coming back, but I mean, yeah, one of those things. Okay, so that, that was so, that was a really interesting space, though. You know, the blockchain yeah. and things like that. It was genuinely interesting at one point and then as you said you know that the crypto bull bros came in and just bulldozed over everything so maybe there's there is still some potential there yeah yeah 100 percent. and i think um the, the potential for that talent and technology still exists in terms of the way it could disrupt uh and actually positively change the music industry i mean the, the the example I always point to is, is tickets, but I mean, uh, also with, you know, recorded music, there are definitely implications, but it requires a much more kind of like broadly taken up kind of ecosystem to, to grow up around that stuff, you know. And I think what, I mean, what seems likely is uh, the kind of, the coming craze around AI will translate in some way through to music and there'll be a, yeah, a similar <laughs> frenzy around it and then it'll fall back and then, then it'll be resolving into something useful you know Some, someone useful. will have that idea you know there will be that idea that comes along i'm sure the idea may have already been had and someone is working on developing that right now it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest you know but um yeah it's it's, it's, it's interesting times and it is an ever-changing you know ai wasn't even in the conversation 18 months ago now it's all over everybody's timelines you know, so who's to say what the how that's going to go in eighteen months' time from now as well? Okay, let's talk about vinyl because this is a a, a thorny topic which um, lovers of electronic music like to discuss in hysterical manner. Um, tell us about what happened in the vinyl market uh, around. Well, I, I guess. Maybe between 2019 and the end of 2022, obviously there was some uh, significant thing that happened in that time period. But like, what were what was the what was the big event uh, in the vinyl production market that happened, and and how have we come out of it? And just t- tell us about that stuff. I think there were a few. To be honest with you, I think it was almost a perfect storm of headwinds going into into vinyl production. You had the. Um, was it Transco Lacquerfire? Where you know the fact that there are there are two companies with a monopoly on on lacquers, which are you know fundamental to the vinyl manufacturing process. One of those goes up in flames. Was one you had the pandemic, which I you know this is my personal opinion. You know based on what I've seen, I think the pandemic the the pandemic fundamentally shifted people's listening and buying habits for music as well. People were sitting at home with lots of disposable income, with, you know, hi-fi systems that they'd bought uh, maybe a couple of years prior, and people were ordering records. I was, you know. um, And I think that, you know, personally, I think... The vinyl DJ market has been on life support now for three, four, maybe five years. You know, people are buying albums and it's shifting very much more over to a collector's market rather than the vinyl format being a tool for playing music in clubs, 
you know, DJs haven't gone out now with vinyl, apart from, you can probably count on one hand the amount of DJs that still go out every weekend that are on that touring circuit with a box or a bag of records. So there was that, there was the lack of fire, there was Brexit and the pricing issues as well and the time frames of of turning round a release and having it available to the public in that period where, you know, we, we as I'm sure you're aware, Paul, a, a, a single has got a four to six week window of it being big in the clubs and it, it doing its thing, you know, in press, DJs playing it, radio being behind it and things like that as well. And people couldn't, people couldn't get their records in time, you know, and you, you couple that with a lot of the shops being closed for people to buy it as well. There was a definite shift over to digital and maybe even D2C as well. You know, which again is another conversation entirely, but it does kind of fit into this as well. How, you know, I'm sure during during the pandemic, people selling their music direct to consumers put food on the table and paid rent for a lot of people as well. But shops wanted new releases as well, so they could stay in business and things like that as well. So there really was a perfect storm of events that just calcified the difficulties of producing vinyl and bringing it to market in that, yeah, in that sort of two, two and a half year period as well. It continues as well with, you know, shipping vinyl into Europe, shipping vinyl. One thing that's always astounded me about the vinyl manufacturing process is that there really isn't many cost-effective pressing plants in the UK they're all in Europe so to make a record you're pressing a record in on mainland Europe shipping it back to the UK to your distributor then shipping it back out to mainland Europe and the world as well there's an environmental discussion to be had there as well you know if you if you think about it the whole thing is insanity yeah okay a fair bit to unpack that let me ask you about Brexit specifically um obviously the vote, the, the vote is in, in 2016, but it's taken a fair while for this to shake out with the various changes of regulations that have kind of played out since then. So just just keeping it with, you know, on the, the impact that that particular change has had, can you talk us through what, what you know, the impact of, of that over time? A hell of a lot more paperwork, whereas before, you know, you'd have frictionless um, transit of goods. Now, you know recipients and senders need to have a thing called an ios number i can't remember what exactly that stands for um but everybody has to have one of those to receive and send goods into the european union as well it's a lot more paperwork basically but luckily we got behind it quite quickly we got ahead of it quite quickly as well and touch wood so far you know, it hasn't caused any real serious problems. The problems lie where you're you're sending things to a guy in Berlin who's ordered a record off a website or something like that. And we all know Germany is a black hole for post anyway, but the issues have come with ones or twos of records, someone ordering a record, then getting stung with customs charges on the other end. So that comes into labels 
having to rethink their pricing structure as well for vinyl, further squeezing the margins on it as well. Because one thing when you press a record is you've got to price it at a price point that one, people are willing to pay and two, it's something that the market can bear as well, I think. You know, a a, a two or three track 12 inch now is like 20 quid. You know, so people yeah. must really want, have to want it, and you've got to incentivize them to want to buy it as well. So yeah, it's, it's it's a real perfect storm at the minute. It's who it still remains to be seen how it's going to shake out going forward. With regard, you know, speak speaking broadly about dance music here in general. You know, it's it's tough. It's it's very tough, but. The signs are, are encouraging. Vinyl manufacturing lead times are, are, have come down significantly in the past couple of months. Whether that means pricing will come down as well remains to be seen. When by, by, by pricing you mean the cost, direct cost associated with, with pressing, pressing plants, basically? Yeah, the direct cost of the per unit cost of pressing a record, which would then dictate what the label then sells that for sure i mean like the other i mean the other sort of uh consequence of brexit which might have seemed to be sort of short term but has kind of endured quite sniffly is the value of the pound declined significantly against the euro so if you're pressing records in europe and you're paying in pounds then you know it, i think it went down what was it 15 to 20 percent i believe it was in the immediate aftermatch insane and the dollar as well you know some labels press in america you know for some labels it works out for them to press in america they get a really cheap per unit cost and with the shipping it's broadly similar to pressing at one of one of the well-known European pressing plants as well. So from what I hear there's there's pressing plants opening up here in the UK all the time. Um, whether they're competitive and whether they can, you know, turn round stock remains to be seen, really. You know, I don't I don't I don't want to sound pessimistic about it, but I I kind of worry that you know, it's always been a supply-demand thing. I'm wondering whether supply will actually catch up with demand now and what that will bring to to the wider infrastructure of it. It seems that's what seems to be happening. Sure. Are you are you familiar with the relative sizes of the like specifically the sort of dance vinyl market in like the US versus the uh, UK and parts of Europe because I mean obviously the US is by far the biggest music market overall but my understanding was that the UK was disproportionately big in the in the um, the area of, of dance vinyl. I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that UK and Europe is dwarfs the US um, you know if we're talking dance vinyl 12 inch singles for instance then yeah the U- UK and Europe dwarfs it I would say it's um, it's where most of the DJs on the on the circuit, you know, like yourself, are probably doing most of their touring UK, mainland Europe, um, and uh, yeah, it's way bigger. You know, America America's always been a, a a really funny territory for selling dance music vinyl in because there's a lot of stores, but they're all so geographically spread out as well. You know, they're not just on your classic West Coast, East Coast, Detroit, Chicago 
sort of thing. There are all these stores in the middle of Iowa that, that move units for labels as well. But yeah, there are certain um, geographic uh, challenges that need to be overcome over there. So, you know, how we work it is that we've got sub-distribution partners in the, in the US and they kind of take care of that for us rather than us having to deal with hundreds of shops and then building up orders over a matter of time. We send it to our one of our sub-distribution partners in the US and they take care of that mm. for us, basically. Okay, so returning to lead times, which you touched upon before, there was a like, really amazing spike in lead times, I think between, what was it, middle of 2021 until the end of 22? Am I right, vaguely right about that? You know, I think with some plants that's still ongoing as well, you know, I know labels have been waiting to stock for the best part of two years now. Right, and okay, so why did that happen and then why did it ease in some quarters on me? I think, you know, the, the narrative that you'd see on social media that it's Adele it's not that it's not that it's um it's i don't think the lack of fire had too much i think it was just oversaturation you know the plants there were those mpo had we we press the majority well all of our vinyl with mpo in france and they they had some hiccups with their um internal systems which caused some backups there but i think it was just you know, I think at the start of the pandemic, it was everybody sort of, it felt a bit like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic a bit. You right. know, everyone was moving their releases around, things like that. People were putting stuff into production. I think it just, that just had a knock-on effect everywhere, really. And there wasn't enough in- infrastructure there to cope with everybody wanting to put releases into production so they were ready at the end of the, you know... We all thought we were going to come out of the pandemic in like six to eight weeks, you know, and we, we all know how that how that particular tree shook out. But um, people, I think it was just supply-demand thing. There wasn't enough infrastructure there to cope to cope with everything. You know, you see all these pictures of Adele's that do, of Adele LPs in Goodwill for $5 that are doing the rounds on social media, and it's it's... It may have played a part, but I think it's, you know, how these major labels work. That job was probably booked in six months before the album was even completed. You know, and Adele had handed it in. They'd booked that capacity at the pressing plant. Okay. I mean, do you think there was an issue with capacity generally? I mean, looking at the sort of medium to long term, I mean, you talked about how uh, the nature of the market is changing from a sort of DJ-led one to a, to a uh, collector's market. Um, do you think that market is going to grow and do you think the capacity is there amongst plants to serve that market without getting these kind of spikes uh, long term? Again, you know, I, I, I'm really mindful of, of, of sounding pessimistic. Per- personally, I thought the vinyl bubble would have burst in 2015. You know, but it, it still seems to endure and there still is that lasting appeal to it. I, as to why, I can't quantify, really. You know, you could say it's Gen Z wanting to have something tactile to listen to. You could say it's it's middle-aged people reconnecting with their youth and things like that. You know, there, there's, there's so many factors there to it. I don't know, but, you know, with these these plants now, 
apparently coming online, I think supply is going to catch up to demand. You know, it's probably it's economics 101 that that will probably put downward pressure on prices as well. So I'm, I'm kind of optimistic about it, really. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's something I thought, you know, the bubble would have burst not long after Record Store Day, which again is another tangent we could go on. Yeah, let's let's do let's do that. Let um let's let's go into record record store day because I've I shouldn't I'm actually not supposed to say this, but we were doing a hot flush trial on record store day this year for the first time in I don't know God knows at least ten years. So and I've completely sort of lost touch with the significance of record store day. Um, so and and this does link in actually also to the D to C question. So tell yeah, what's your take on Record Store Day? What's the what's the what's the conversation to be had there? My my hot take on Record Store Day is that I, you know I think it started out with really noble intentions. You know, it really did start out as something that you know you would go down the West End on on that day and Black Market would have their their doors open and they'd have LB and people like that playing in there. And it, it generally felt like a celebration of record shops and that culture that goes round them as well. You know, soul jazz would be a roadblock. Um, but now it's just, it's, it's, it seems like a, a, a vehicle for major labels to look back in their, in their catalogue and seeing what they can exploit for it. You know, um, Oh yes, the world does need Nana's ninety nine red balloons on a red balloon shaped picture disc, but people still buy it, you know. And one thing that I see when I kind of do the rounds in record shops is the amount of leftover stock that's sitting in the shops as well. That I'd imagine that the major labels have said they have to order on firm sale, you know, no returns on this, and the amount of it that ends up in the discount bins <laughs> three months later, still sitting there unsold, kind of tells its own story, I think. that You know, so I had a look at this year's list. This year's list looked quite encouraging. You know, there was I saw, for instance, the Ed Rush and Optical are doing Wormhole, and I was like, okay, I'm actually going to set foot in a record shop on that day and try and buy a copy of that, you know. Um, things like that so yeah it's yeah I think it's great for record shops because I'm sure it's it's like you know Black Friday times five for them and if it's a double-edged sword because if it keeps them going it's a good thing but again it puts that pressure on the infrastructure of pressing pressing plants and manufacturing and you know sort of going back to like 2010 2011 you know the people putting stuff into record store day would hold stuff up for a couple of weeks and that was a major issue back then you know oh my record's going to be two weeks late because of record store day and now it's like seems like a dream you know (laughs) like a a fever dream it's like if only that would be the case now you know but yeah I think it ultimately started out with you know really noble intentions but it's just become this other thing yeah so, I mean, obviously, the nature of Records Today is something which is designed, I suppose, to support that infrastructure, which is a key part of the dance scene generally. Um, and it's one which has kind of taken a battering as the DJ market has declined. 
Um, I think it's fair to say. But what's your general assessment of the state of um, that infrastructure, that kind of ecosystem, the record shops ecosystem around the world and the way it's, its capacity to support individual scenes, I suppose, which is kind of the question that I suppose most people listening to this will be interested in. Like, what? I mean, how bad is it currently? I, I, I wouldn't say it's as bad as, you know, you, you would read. I think social media can distort a lot of things, you know, if you, if you hook into one particular narrative on social media you know, people can tend to take that as gospel. But, you know, you've got stores like Hard Wax, for instance, they'll always endure. You know, they do their thing. You know, I've noticed, though, as well, that they've started sort of widening their remit a bit as well. They're stocking the occasional sort of jazz album here and there. Mm. And things like that. So even they're widening their remit. So the, the stores that, you know, sort of foster a community, so to speak, they're thinner and th- you know i think the sort of great record shop sort of purge of 2000 when when was a recession it was like 2008 wasn't it the financial crisis i mean that wiped out a lot of of, of distros and it wiped you know the, the domino effect of that was that that wiped out some shops as well um coincidentally that was when i started at kudos it was um the label I was at, we were through Pinnacle and a lot of our business was um, Woolworths and WH Smiths and the chain stores and things like that. And it was just, it was overnight, you know, it was just like, okay, we're done. And I, I started at Kudos in the midst of a financial crisis. And at, at that point, Kudos was... Uh, had Pinnacle doing our picking and packing and dispatching for us as well. And at that point, we brought it all in-house. So it's all, you've been to the office, Paul, you've seen the vinyl mines. Um, you know, we brought it all in-house and it was kind of the best thing we ever did was, okay, we do everything out of here now. Let, let me let me just, sorry, let me, let me just jump in and ask you about the nature of that uh, sort of event in, as, you know, as a result of, as a kind of like symptom of that, financial crisis because i mean my experience of uh well i mean our business at the time i mean obviously it's, it's a kind of you know what we do is a kind of micro operation really so like it was kind of coincided with us doing stuff which people like so we didn't really experience a kind of the broader downturn but i mean the, the other thing to note was that the kind of live side of music industry wasn't that adversely affected i mean it was certainly um I mean the kind of the truism of uh, of recessions that people still want to go out and have a party, right? So there was always people always going to find the money to do that. So what was the did the bottom just fall out of the market or what happened of that particular thing? You know what we did there was largely five pound um, petrol station CDs. You know the, the business model Got there it. was. Stack them high, sell it, license it cheap, stack them high, sell them cheap. Basically, that was the business model. So it was all about getting it in Woolworths, in WH Smiths, in HMV. Right, so you're just exposed to a decline of consumer spending generally, I guess. Yeah, basically. And then Pinnacle went under. That was sort of mid-2008. There was also another big distributor as well called Entertainment UK, who used to supply Woolworths and uh, all these other big sort of chain stores 
the our price and places like that. I can't remember exactly when our price went under, but it wasn't long before that. Zavi yeah. and Virgin Megastore and things like that. You know, they were large parts of the of the business for big independents and the majors as well. And and Pinnacle really put a torpedo in that. Pinnacle going under really, really put a torpedo in that. And about that time, you had the advent of Spotify as well. Spotify was just in its nascent stages then as well, where it just launched. People were still sceptical of it. It's funny, as you were saying that, I was uh, like, stuff like Virgin Megastore and Tower Records and, and all those, uh, they're almost analogous to like Blockbuster Video and Netflix's Spotify. And, and any one of those companies, had they had a bit of foresight, could have used their existing brand, existing position, existing position in the marketplace to really take over if they'd seen that change coming. And none of them did, right? I mean... No, none of them did. HMV, HMV's an interesting one because every time I set foot in a HMV, it's like vinyl and Funko Pops now. So HMV yeah. seems to sort of move their business model to what people want to buy. You know, the whole Funko... F- pop thing i don't know anything about that but you know you could argue that some vinyl is essentially funko pops now you know when you start talking about all these colored variants and lenticular sleeves and that you know you could argue that so you know hmv does continue to but yeah i recently saw a a kickstarter as well to bring our price back I was like, no, you know, the, the world doesn't need the world doesn't need a, a nostalgia-driven record store. No, I mean, our price was always so uncool. Anyway, it's like, oh, it was not uh, something to be looked back upon favorably. Yeah, it was the the uncool younger brother to 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 HMV. I think the last time I set <laughs> set foot in an hour price was to buy a Oasis "Be Here Now" the day it came out. That was like. <laughs> 98 or something but um going back to your original question about how record stores kind of foster a community and around them i think they've shifted now i think you know the you see more and more record shops they're opening up and they've got coffee shops in them and they've got a small live space in them as well which is really cool you know um so you can go in there you can grab a coffee and browse through the racks as well you know and i think what they're going for is is playing in the coffee shop. You can nip next door. Oh, they've got the record of it up on the wall. I'll grab that. And it's those impulse buys and that that, that people go for as well. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's just I think that's just shifted slightly rather than a shop like I, I, I can't think of but a shop where, you know, black market back in the day, you'd go down there on a Saturday, yeah. you'd wait and you'd be in the scrum for Ray or or Nikki to hand out a, a white label of something. Now, it's people in their sort of thirties, you know, maybe touching their forties, kind of going in, having a coffee on a Saturday morning, browsing through and buying the Wet Leg album or something like that. You know, it's just people growing up and it's shifting over as well. I think that's what that is. It's a different kind of community. I think. I mean, is there is there an equivalent for your average? Gen Z con- consumer of music or fan of music. Let's use a nicer term. Um, is is there a, is there an equivalent which isn't online? I don't know. I think it's become such a large factor of of everything now. You know, I'm sure if you were to go on the Taylor Swift subreddit 
or something like that. That's what drives it. It's, I don't want to say too much about her because I don't want an IED put under my car or something. But being a Record Store Day ambassador, and think, I think ultimately it's a good thing. You know, it gets people... And if that, you know, you buy a Taylor Swift record and that ultimately inspires someone to dig a little deeper and they could go down one of many different pathways and on a voyage of discovery. I think that, I think that's a beautiful thing, you know, um, but regards to sort of offline communities, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think okay. so. I don't think there's, you know, a shop where people go and, and hang out, you know, and they, don't talk about it on the internet because everybody talks about everything on the internet now. So I'd like to think that there is, but probably not. Okay, um, let's talk about a direct-to-consumer thing. Is Bandcamp bad for record shops? Not necessarily, no. I, I, I don't think it's, it's... I think the two can coexist. I think, you know, I think when uh, artists and labels base an entire release strategy about selling a record on Bandcamp um, I don't think that's necessarily good for a wider whole or the consumer as well um, you know it's going it's going back into that giving the consumer the choice thing you know there, there, there's one label you know I'm, I'm not going to name them explicitly but I'm sure you can work it out they took all their music off streaming and now they sell their music on Bandcamp like three weeks before it's available in shops and I just wonder how many people that leads to soul seek. Right. Is, is that, is that the label? Is, is, <laughs> is that the label uh, whose owner complained on Twitter about RA not covering their, taking their music off Spotify? Is that, is it that label? <laughs> I, I think we're on the same page. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, so getting ahead—that's what, what I was getting at, I suppose, with the with the shops thing. It's like if you if you're looking to get ahead of the shops, then surely that does have a negative effect. I mean, and I, I guess what I'm getting at is, um, like, if if you accept or if you just just recognise that the the kind of the role of record shops are, it's not just a retail role, right? I mean, and, and maybe this is an out-of-date view, given what we've just said, but historically, the role of record shops, uh, it goes further than just, you know, flogging vinyl. And if you seek to undermine that, and and you might, you know, there the are very good business reasons to do that, it should be noted, because you do get paid a lot more for a direct-to-consumer sale than you do for a, for a record shop sale. So, I mean... Like to to what degree should this be frowned upon? I suppose is what I'm getting at. I, I don't I don't think it, it, it should. You know I think you know that from a from a distributor's point of view, there there the, you know there there are questions that need to be asked when a, a, a label releases a record um, in a small run, um, and they sell the lion's share direct to consumer. There's an there's an appetite for record shops for it. And there's not enough to go around, you know, um, that causes problems. It, it it can cause probably ill feeling from record shops as well going forward. They're like, well, I'm not going to support this label because they sell everything D to C and don't, don't, you know, as you said, mate, the shops are an important part of the culture. So 
you know, as as a distributor, what, what we always say to labels is, it's like, yeah, cool, sell D to C. You know, it's we understand that. You know, during the pandemic, it put food on the table for a lot of people. It paid people's bills, but put some parity there with the record shops as well. You know, put it everywhere at the same time. And again, you know, I don't want to labour the point, but let the consumer make the choice. You know, I'd imagine a lot of people will buy it on Bandcamp because they like that fuzzy feeling of, of buying it directly from the artist, which is great, you know, but it shouldn't come at the expense of record shops who would support it and who would shout about it being undersupplied as well i think you know so no i'm 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 a i'm a i'm a fan of bandcamp definitely but that you need to strike a balance which i guess now is the conversation that was 10 years or so ago when it was just vinyl digital people were windowing their digital six months six weeks after the vinyl because they thought it would cannibalize their vinyl sales you know it's like just put everything out same time let consumer make the choice i think record shops will always be a hugely important part of 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 culture being that dance music be indie you know i'm sure actually having thought about it i'm sure there's probably some like super underground heavy metal shops you know, where there's no online and the guys are all going down there in their battle jackets and that. <laughs> I'd love to find out what they are, you know. Do you have a view on the takeover of Bandcamp by Epic? Um, I mean, there was a, all, there was a huge sort of outpouring of angst about that at the time, but are you, do, do you have a view about whether that's been a good thing or a bad thing or whether it's made any difference at all? You know, I, I, I haven't seen any huge changes in Bandcamp you know, that, that would come from a, a big sort of injection of capital to, to fundamental... I think what they'll do is they'll roll it out over a period of time and, you know, drip feed any changes. You know, there, there may be an element of, if it isn't broke, don't try and fix it as well. You know, it, 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 it does... You know, there are certain tech issues there which i'm sure you have as a label as well that you think i mean there's lots of stuff that could be better about it for sure there's a hell of a lot that could be better but it was i think it was inevitable you know it it, it was bound to happen at at some point sooner or later and (coughs) i think Bandcamp, where they've been really clever is how they've marketed themselves as the friend to artists and labels and things like that and i think they're very cognizant of continuing to have that appearance as well. You know, it was the discourse on Twitter was wild about it. You know, it really was. I mean, it's such a great example of uh, just yeah, this kind of pitchfork mentality when people don't quite understand what's happening, but it seems like it should be bad. It was. It was going to happen at some point. So I, I think it's too early to say. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the team at Bandcamp have got good intentions and, you know, hopefully in the short term, they'll make some improvements to the to the tech side of it for labels and stuff as well. But who knows where it's going to go? You know, I, I saw something that there's going to be NFTs or and, you know, uh, tokens on there as well. I mean, just stuff like, you know, releases appearing on multiple artist pages and that kind of thing which you'd think would be such an easy fix and would would really help actually with the kind of network effects of and particularly now 
the way people are used to leveraging collabs across DSPs, which is one of the most common ways of you know, generating a buzz around a record, is to put a bunch of features on it. Like if I mean, having having a release only able to be visible on one artist's page just seems to be completely anachronistic and and presumably quite an easy tech fix. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's a very easy fix, but you know, I think they 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 probably have their reasons. For, for 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 not doing it yeah I don't, I, I don't i can't comment all i can really sort of comment on on that front is um you know the the day-to-day issues with the the way the site works other than that i think it's it's been a good thing for for the music in general but yeah too early to say i think on that front i imagine they're all just you know the the owners are just getting back off their holidays now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I haven't quite finished counting the money yet. Um, so, okay. Obviously, you know, a very large proportion of the, the stuff that you do is, is around digital, actually, though. So ha- tell me how you guys approach working with labels to sell underground music on DSPs. Um, because I mean the the whole system of play algorithmic playlists and editorial playlists and all the rest of it is I think extremely poorly understood by your average uh, underground music producer slash budding label owner. So how do you go about that kind of partnership? It's you know pitch, pitching to Spotify and places like that. It, it's it's like mastering. It's a black art. You know um, there there are certain rules and regulations that you have to adhere by when pitching releases to DSPs you know I guess for this purposes of this conversation I'll largely talk about Spotify so you you pitch a week you know a, a, a fixed period of time in advance of the release and with that we're we look at what the label gives us to, to formulate that pitch we can either do that pitch or the label can do that pitch themselves via Spotify for eyes a lot of the time we, we do the pitch for them and we sort of say, okay, what's happening around this release? We're four weeks out now. Tell us what's going on around this release to help us sell it. They'll send us a load of info. We will formulate a pitch based on that, uh, send it through via the form, you know, which everybody pitches through. You know, we do have direct lines to editors and stuff there as well, but you can only imagine the amount of emails that they're getting from people as well. So it's formulating a strong pitch and then, then following up from that. But another, another thing that's really important, I think it's important, you know, when you look at Spotify from an outsider's perspective, not someone, you know, like us, for instance, who works with it every day, it's important to remember that Spotify really are a data company more than a music company, I think. So they're looking at what previous releases have done. They're looking at skip-through rates of the tracks as well. That Those sort of things influence playlisting decisions as much as a pitch as well. If they're looking at this track and it's like, oh, people are listening to four seconds of it, then skipping, they're, that's likely not going to positively affect uh, a playlist inclusion basically so you know people come up with all sorts of this is why you're seeing shorter edits of tracks 
and stuff appear on DSPs as well. It's like a uh, it's like a Trojan horse of trying to get in and kind of hack that algorithm. You know, the the, the trendy thing at the minute is something called waterfalling, where you're releasing an album stage by stage, which the um, the the point of that is to release a new track, but then have people go back and listen to the old tracks as well. It's it's like hackers trying to breach a uh, a firewall. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. So it's you know we 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 pitch, and then you know we find out the same time as the artist finds out. We get an email if something has been included to a playlist, and it's it's about shouting about it, and it's about getting ears on it, and then that drives it more as well a, a really wild example of something like this that's happened recently is um a track by leatherette do you know leatherette the guys from wolverhampton yes um they had a track that just went massive on tiktok and instagram reels ah oh, the uh the holy grail of the music industry but what, what that translates to in money re- remains to be seen you know it's very early days but it's gone bananas and the uptick on streams on spotify has subsequently gone bananas as well so what let, let me hang on a sec let me, let me ask you what was the nature of that tiktok event was it uh was it the classic someone uh did a dance to it which then went viral like what what happened on that platform i i, I look back in my messages um with with andy from leatherette and what I can pin, what we can pinpoint it to is some huge porn star using it on a reel on Instagram. Okay, nice. And um, <laughs> that's that's kind of the the patient zero for it, from what I can see, you know. But which track is it for the uh, for the benefit of our listeners? Whoop baby, you'll know it when you hear it. You, I guarantee you, you will know it. I think since then it's got like a Starbucks sink and things like that as well. So, you know, Andy's, Andy's very happy about it. You know, I think it's even led to him um, doing some co-production for some like pop stars and stuff as well. So he's delighted about it. But um, weirdly, we, I say weirdly. So, you know, that track had been out. I think it's four years old at this point, which goes to show that like these things can happen long after the event as well. It's don't get disheartened sure. if week two or week three after release you're still not in any playlists. These things can happen months or years afterwards. So we we, we were chatting to Andy about this, and it's like, okay, how can we capitalise on this? You know, so he's basically added another forty five seconds to it. He's done a longer edit of it. He's thrown that on DSP, so that can be pitched as well. So he gets another crack of the whip at it. And that came out sort of two weeks ago, I think. So we're sort of keeping a a keen eye on that one and seeing what happens with that in tandem with the original as well. But yeah, that's a sort of good example. There's no time frame on, you know... On, on when these things can happen or when they when or if they can blow up as well it's it's, it's so hard to quantify you know a, yeah. a friend of mine works for a a, a a well-known sort of tech house label and you know based on conversations with him i can see how much effort they're putting into 
getting stuff playlisted and things like that as well. And sometimes it just happens, you know, but... Yeah, I think it's important to to emphasise how opaque it is. Because, I mean, like you say, like you don't... You never really know in advance in any kind of detail. I mean, you might have a kind of vague idea that they're going to support something, but generally you don't know what uh, playlist it's going to go in. I mean, I don't know, fairly sure even the people who are you know much sort of bigger players don't have a, a completely detailed breakdown of how it works and it does seem like i mean i mean what i've compared it to in the past is how the way sort of commercial radio used to work when that was much more of a significant thing in the in the promotion of a, a sort of uh, a record and that was obviously down to the whims of individual DJs, but also obviously they had you have you'd have sort of playlist committees on certain radio stations. I mean, this is more of a thing in America than it was in in Europe, but but definitely still a thing in Europe. And and actually on on Radio One and Radio Two, it's still a very big thing. And getting a playlist on Radio One is still a big big deal. Definitely, you know, um, I think by and large, you know. Uh, probably a good a, a good thing to sort of keep in mind on a strategy on on something like that is to treat Spotify like radio. Yeah, that's the exact point that I have made before on on this, and people people don't uh, quite get it, but I, I actually think it's just obvious, you know. It, it's it's treated like it's radio, you know, and look at getting a new music Friday, getting in the A list on Radio One, basically, you know that that's that's the way. It's not going. It's not. It's not going to go away, Spotify. You know, and you know, for all the everything you read about it, it's here to stay. So you you, you really should sort of capitalize on it and 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 use it to your advantage as well. Because it's not going to cannibalize your physical sales. It's not going to cannibalize your a la carte downloads as well. And there's probably an argument there that you know a la carte downloads are, are really on the decline as well, based on streaming as well um so yeah it's that that's the that's the way to play it you know um but yeah it's who knows where that's going to go you know going back to the ai thing paul could ai come in and that dictate the algorithm for playlist inclusion you know could two years down the line ai be determining what goes in what playlist on streaming services yeah i mean at the very least you think it would make it uh a lot more effective i mean there's there's obviously algorithmic playlists based on their own internal data and the way they analyze that as as it as it is but i mean you'd think that you know as as ai improves those would just get better and i think particularly with personalized playlists just in terms of like you know having making uh making streaming platforms better for the listener i mean that would strike me as something that which could and, and particularly with music discovery you know because that's something which is often criticized uh in well the the degree to which dsps and streaming platforms in particular how effective they are at music discovery um like a really strong ai algorithm would seem to be like that's only going to improve, right? That's it surely must improve in that in that respect. And gi- and given given just given sorry just given, just given the amount of 
new artists that there are and this is a huge problem not just for existing artists but people who are genuinely talented trying to get noticed like a really good ai ai which actually could make a value judgment about whether method music was good or not that'd be amazing i think that's probably the way that'll go you know I mean, but you know looking at sort of music discovery and things like that as so i look at a store like Boomcat and and what an important role they play in music discovery as well, you know, that, I think they still play a, a huge, huge part in, you know, ultimately shaping a lot of people's tastes in music as well. And I think they're a really good example of, even though they don't have a, a, a physical store anymore, they've got their own fan base around them, so to speak, who really trust what they say. And yeah, I mean, they like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you said, they're a kind of trusted media voice now, as much as anything else, like more so than probably most of the certainly the reviews departments of the big music online mags, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, um, you know, I think music journalism is a, is a whole other Rubicon that I'm not, I'm not going to cross, you know, and how that comes into it as well but yeah you know just thinking about it boom gap was a a really good example of that you know how they're that like you said they're a trusted voice and you can't you can't replace that you know yeah. so that those sort of places will always have their their corner of the market that they exist in and, and ultimately thrive in as well mm. Let me ask you, how much pushback do you get from labels when you try and uh, emphasise the importance of stuff like Spotify? Because, I mean, there is a pretty high degree of scepticism, I think, within, well, certainly from artists anyway, about whether, or the degree to which they should pay attention to to streaming and the amount of resources, uh, financial or otherwise, that they should devote to trying to get noticed on those platforms like what what do people generally think i mean i think if you'd have asked me this question 10 years ago the number would be a lot higher but now hardly any to be honest with you a lot more labels now are using streaming as a more and more of their release strategy really and and really adapting to it and really leaning into it as well and going okay what how how can this work with a strong physical and digital strategy, you know, a la carte and physical strategy as well. And um, that, again, is a... That's huge where, you know, 10, 15... Sorry, not that long, 10 or so years ago, it was a really hard sell to labels, getting them to put their stuff on streaming. It was really, really tough. Um, There was so much pushback against it. But now, hardly... In answer to the question, hardly any. You know, we're, we're like, right... How, how can we leverage this on, on, on DSPs? And, you know, as a, as a distributor, it's our job to um, work with that and do what we can on behalf of the label, really. So is the, as a sort of follow-up question to that, is the uh, techno-Twitter antipathy towards... DSPs is that in any way damaging or is it just people screaming into the ether and it makes no difference really yeah it's, it's an echo chamber what I think that is you know um, yeah I think I, I don't think that has any that has any you know meaningful impact on on anybody really it, it's 
short attention span. So if you scroll past it, you're like, <laughs> you know, and you, you go, you go on with your day, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you know it's it's yeah. That, yeah, that's all I'm going to say on that. <laughs> so is, is techno Twitter just a load of bullshit then? Um, part, parts of it are, you know, you sort of read some things and you're, you're like, what are you talking about? You know, um, but I don't know. With, with regard, as, as, a, as a construct, yeah, techno Twitter is something that, that, that frankly terrifies me. And I, I try to um, have... As, as, as minimal contact with it as I can. Okay, well, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call you out there actually, because because <laughs> you 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 are a prolific user of Twitter, aren't you? Um, less and less these days, I would say. You know, um, I mean, I'm literally looking at your timeline right now, and it does seem like you're quite active on there. Yeah, but you know, Paul, I'm trying to lean more into bird Twitter these days. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting <laughs> as as I uh, stare down the barrel of fifty. I'm a, uh, I bought a camera, and you know, my weekends now are going out and taking photos of birds and things like that. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I still love dance music. I still, you know, live for it, but. You know, I think as you as you get a bit older, your sort of your focuses sort of start to shift a little bit more. You know, but yeah, Twitter is Twitter is Twitter. You know, I personally I love it. You know, I think it can be really funny. It can be a really sort of useful tool as well, but also it can be massively infuriating and and soul destroying as well. You know, so I think. I mean, you are you are good at it, though. I mean, you've definitely got an eye for a sort of pithy take. I mean, you've had you know, your tweets do extraordinarily well. Some of them, I have to say, like I mean, and the- I, yeah, and I, I don't I don't know why either. I don't know why. Um, you know, some of them, yeah, they do, and it's, it's funny. I was at a um, uh, an employee ownership thing with with Danny, the MD of kudos a couple of months ago and uh we were talking to we were talking to someone there and the, the subject of twitter came up and danny danny said oh ben's a bit of a thing on twitter you should follow him i was like what <laughs> <laughs> and i was like there's always that thing in the back of my mind that like yeah my boss follows me on here so let's uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was... I set up the original Kudos Twitter sort of back in 2009 and the, the keys were taken off me fairly, fairly swiftly for that. No, I mean, you you never say... I'd Actually, I'm trying to think about this. Like, you, you, like it's never... Like, it's never offensive, but you definitely say things. Like, there was one recently about Skrillex, Fortet and, and Fred again. And Fred again's actually been a recurring theme in your... Twitter, Twitter tunnel. In fact, let me ask you about Fred again. <laughs> Why is Fred again so popular in your opinion? Paul, I've heard one of his songs, that one that was made during the pandemic um, called We've Lost Dance. That is, and the one with Flo Dan as well. That is literally all I've heard. I mean, they're both pretty good tracks, to be fair, those two. The Flo, the Flo Dan one is pretty good. Let's be honest, you know. Um, it is, yeah. I, I, to me, it just seems like low-hanging fruit. Basically, you know, it's like it's. A, I talk about Twitter to people. I'm like, just take everything I say on there with a pinch of salt because that's what it is. Don't take it seriously. It's just, it's like mind. It's like Jerry the Damager's mind spray, you know. So, um, 
it's, it's low hanging fruit. You know, I, I can't really honestly comment on his music because I've heard like those two tracks. But listen, people are buying tickets to his shows. People are streaming his music. So all power to him, I say, you know, it's not for me, but it's, it's an easy target to take the piss out of, you know, with the whole uh, background thing and thing like that. Yeah, I mean, I think life would be much better if everyone just realised that what people say on social media really bears very little res- relevance to what they actually think, or certainly what they would say in public, like in person, you know? Like I, I Definitely, you know, some sometimes people just say things on social media that, oh, this will get a few retweets, you know, it's just funny. I think that's true for everyone, though. I think it's basically every single user of Twitter proceeds in that sort of spirit you know and but they don't assume that everyone else is doing that right and so there is zero assumption that people are using it in the same way that you are but but the way you're using it explains why you're getting pissed off with that other person to a large extent yeah Yeah, maybe to be honest with you i've never thought about it that deeply you know what i mean it's just okay what can what what can we make a joke about today you know and yeah there are Observation, you know, in amongst the the the, the piss taking and things, there are the the occasional um, astute observation about you know and genuinely like sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not heartfelt, but a lot of people it's an, it's an extension of their personality, and it's largely what I'm like in real life as well, you know. So. Yeah, that, that's Twitter. That's the the great uh, bird in the sky that everyone always gets so angry about all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, last couple of things. All we've talked about with regards to the vinyl market and digital and then developing extra digital. Like, yeah, when you're talking to labels now and when you're thinking about the, sort of the development of your the labels that you work with, looking at, say, maybe like over the next five to ten years, like, do you foresee like significant changes i mean this is a tough question to ask i realize but like if i can ask you to just you know speculate a little bit like where is it going both in terms of vinyl i mean we're talking about for underground labels here where is it going in terms of a split between vinyl and digital and what the development's going to be in digital do you uh, suspect vinyl will remain largely the same i think you know there's always going to be the, the, the thing is with vinyl in, in regards to like underground labels and things like that is that the market has shrunk down now rather than what it was, you know. So it's catering to a, a smaller market, making making that, that product more desirable to your fan base and to your, you know, to people who are potentially going to buy your vinyl. So it's things, you know, old, old tricks like release some, uh, physical and a digital, but stick a track on the on the physical to incentivize people to buy that physical version as well. By all means, make it available digitally later down the line. But you know, if someone shelled out fifteen pound for your record, sort of incentivize them to sort of feel looked after for doing that. You know what I mean? Um, with regards to digital. All bets are off, I think, you know, with what we talked about with AI and things like that. Who knows? What's that um, technology cycle called where technology makes these big advances like in a certain period of time? I can't remember what it's called, but, you know, 10 years down the line, who knows where we're going to be with digital? 
you know, but I think there's always going to be a smaller and smaller, not shrinking, but a small, a small but dedicated following for dance music on vinyl, I think. Mm. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's the labels and the, the artists and, you know, by extension, the distributor's job to work to find ways to make that product attractive to people as well and make people want to spend their hard-earned money on it as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I certainly think the days of just like sticking something out and expecting it to sell a certain number of units are very much in the past. I think you've got to be much more proactive with marketing these days, like whether it's a... Yeah, you know, it's... Nowadays, if you if you sell 312s, you've got to look at that as a success. Unless you're one of the bigger indies... You know, you have certain labels who will always do a certain number of, of units. But if you're a label on like your sixth or seventh release and you're, you know, you're cultivating that fan base and you're you're really working on it. If you're selling out, you've got to look at that as a, you've got to chalk that up as a win. Now, you, you might not necessarily make much money on it. But, you know, a lot of that, I think as well, is about the optics and, and going on your, your social media and, and telling, sorry, we're sold out. We might repress it. And then that drives up prices on the secondary market, which further adds to the desirability of it as well. You know, it's the optics of things like that as well. Um, so, yeah, hard, really, really tricky question to answer, especially on the digital front. Yeah, okay. So, last question. What are the most important record shops in Europe? You mentioned Hard Wax, but uh, as it stands today, are we talking for dance music? Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, actually, well, I mean, take that question as you as you want to answer it. But um, yeah, what are the most significant retail shops surviving? Brick and mortar shops, as well as online, I think you know Hard Wax definitely for dance music. That's still the sort of the temple of of of. 4-4 music I think you know a lot of labels and artists see it as a you know they're buzzing if their record's stocked in hard wax because they do still have that kind of cachet of being really choosy about what they take and everyone loves a little hard wax haikus and things like that as well um tip tip yeah getting a tip was just amazing I probably still do that I haven't had, had one for years but yeah. I'm not gonna um I'm not going to name any names here, but years ago, when that was, you know, when that was almost like a meme in itself, labels putting in in their sales notes, putting tip on the end of their sales notes, you'd see which stores were just <laughs> copy and pasting the sales notes and putting the tip on it. <laughs> Whether that still works, I don't know, but um, it's certainly that is did. smart. It certainly yeah. did. Whoever came out of that the first time, well done. <laughs> um, hard wax, you know, in London, you've got Fonica, which is, you know, as well, based on their location, the footfall and that that they get and the fact that they've been in business for so long as well. You've got Boomcat online. You've got Piccadilly, also in Manchester, who also hugely important to that culture in Manchester as well. You know, they've played a huge part in breaking a lot. Going back to like Mark Ray and the Grand Central days and things like that as well. They were hugely important. Um, uh, Berlin. Yeah, Hard Wax is the one. I haven't been to Berlin for a while, but Hard Wax is the one that sticks out for me. 
uh, you've got Sounds of the Universe, you've got Bleep, you know, which comes with the whole warp heritage as well. You know, you've got Norman's Banquet Records down in Kingston. Huge, you know, and there's so many like um, really dedicated shops like Soul Brother in Putney, which sells soul, jazz and funk, but they've been going for years and they've got a real dedicated customer base that goes in and buys stuff on their recommendation every week. And there are new record shops popping up all the time. So also who knows what's going to be, who's going to come in and sort of fill up a space for a certain subculture of music as well in five years time or so. So yeah, it's interesting times. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, man, thanks for your time. It's been great. Really appreciate it. No, thank you. I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, that was Ben Morris. What an interesting conversation. As I mentioned at the top, we haven't had a distribution person on the show before. So it was great to have someone at the sharp end be able to really dig into those issues, dig into the vagaries of the market, the fluctuations of the market. And yeah, he's um, an interesting person. And as I mentioned at the top, a guy who is worth following on Twitter. So yeah, do that, do that. Right, I think we're done for this week. I'm not going to talk too much more. I mentioned the Hot Flash 20 shows at the top. hf20.news slash events gets you to the info page for all those shows. If you're in any of those cities, please come down and say hello. We'd love to see you there. If you message me on the Discord, you might even be able to get on the guest list if I'm feeling particularly generous. That would be nice of me. If you're a patron, actually, then, yeah, I mean, I will just put you on the guest list, frankly, if you're a patron. But that Discord server is accessible via hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. Okay, I think we're done for this week. As I mentioned at the top, you can support us if you like what you hear on this episode. You can support us via Patreon, patreon.com slash official. There's two tiers, both which are really good value, both which are worth doing. Not judging which one you want to do, but yeah, we would really, really appreciate it if you would support us in this way if you're able to. If you're not, also cool. Leave us a review or a rating. Follow for Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. And join us on the Discord if you've got anything to say. It's a great community and we would love to see you there. So hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord gets you into that Discord server. And yeah, anything you've got to say, positive or negative, in a constructive way, of course, would be great. We'd like to see you there, as I said. Right, I think I'm done here. I will check you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Where's that dust coming from? 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.